Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. All in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. For that day, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, and let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord. I have good news to start. The length of the text will not correlate to the length of the sermon. So if that's what you were worried about as we read a very long passage, it's going to be okay. We're going to make lunch. We are still in our time in the book of the Twelve. The book of the Twelve is the minor prophets. Um, you had some major prophets, and they were major because their prophecies were longer. And then you have the minor prophets, 12 books that were compiled together to make one book. And these prophets would come and they would speak about who God was. They would remind the people of God of the character of God. And so they had a vital role and, and they were used by God for His glory. Often though, on this side of Jesus, we don't make it back to the Old Testament as often as we should. You see, the Old Testament should shape our understanding of who the Messiah is and who Jesus is and how He's come and what He's done. But we neglect it, and, 
And so one of the ways that we're going back and, and remembering is through a sermon series, the book of the Twelve. Who were the minor prophets? Who is Zephaniah and how is he different from Zechariah? You know, we have all these questions and we've had to look and, and figure out where these books are, but the reality is that most of them have an echo of the same thing. Most of them are reminding the people of God, either Israel or Judah, that the Lord their God deserves all of their praise, all of their glory, all of their lives. Over and over, that's what they're reminded of. That they've come and they've given him half-hearted praise. That they've gone and chased after other gods. That they've pursued other things than the Lord their God, the Lord who is one. Well, I just want to tie this together in case we lose sight of it. But in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews reminds the church that God has always proclaimed his goodness and his glory to his people. And he even reminds them of how, he's, how he has done it. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these, day, these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Today we're going to be talking about the day of the Lord. Sometimes we put this Old Testament God in a box, and we put Jesus in another box, and we say, listen, the God of the Old Testament was a God of justice and wrath, but the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is, is merciful and kind and loving, and he doesn't hold anything against anybody. That's not true. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we need to do, what, what we're called to do, is to have our idea of who Jesus is shaped by all of Scripture. There's a very real tendency and even allure, like something that we're drawn to, to make Jesus who we want him to be. But as the created beings, as we've already talked about in the prayer of confession, as we've already sung, we don't get to make those decisions we don't get to create Jesus into what we want him to be. We are given Jesus. And today we're going to see that being given Jesus is beautiful. Man, it's good. It's good that on the day of the Lord we got Jesus. But we have to take him as he's given to us by the God who is powerful and mighty and glorious and righteous and just the one who is also merciful and kind and long-suffering, but we have to get the whole of it. We don't get to just take bits and pieces. And so this morning we're looking at Zephaniah. Zephaniah is going to give us Jesus. He's going to give us that Jesus is both the end and the means of the promise of God. He, he's what we get. Throughout the Old Testament, God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. How is that true if we are just sinners? Like if we, what we read in that first part, it was a little hard, right? I mean, as we're reading through that, we're like, man, this is awful. And that's to the people of God. They were perverse in their judgments and in their justice. They, they didn't care about their God. But what we're going to see is that Zephaniah points to a hope that you and I get to see today in Jesus. 
But we need ears to hear that. We need eyes to see it because the, the, the first part of the gospel, the bad news, is hard for us to receive. We just want to skip right to the good news that, that Jesus has saved. But what has he saved us from and what has he saved us to? So let's ask God this morning to do that. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this morning we get to come and we get to hear your word given to Zephaniah to the people of Judah. God, and that, that word would be the, the word that we need to hear today in Cape Canaveral thousands of years later. We need to know that our God is just and our God is good and he's righteous and he's merciful. And today, if, we, if he would hide us We would not have to suffer the judgment, but we would be hidden in God and saved. That we would experience mercy in place of judgment. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who God is and what he has done. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see that today. I pray for those who in their hearts are saying, you're not good. Would you show us that you're good? For those of us in our, who in our hearts would question your justice, Lord, would you show us today that you are just? God, and may our hearts spring forth in praise as you've called us to in the end of Zephaniah. May our lives be worshipped because of that. We ask for this miracle, Lord, today in this place and throughout your church, throughout the world, God. Lord, may there be people that would sing the praises of a good and holy and just God for the first time today. May they join the chorus of the saints. Not for us, but for your glory. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, even in that long reading um, of chapter 3, We've actually spared some of the judgment that happens in chapters 1 and 2. But for us to get the context, we have to understand that Zephaniah is is preaching, and and it's, it's actually a collection of his prophecies that he's giving to the people of Judah during the last um, reign of Judah. Judah is about to be destroyed by the Assyrians, and then the Assyrians are going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. We've, we've hit this a couple times through Nahum and through Jonah, so we have a little bit more of the history of the people of God. It's a divided kingdom. The kingdom of Israel has already been taken over. The kingdom of Judah remains, but not for much longer. And so Zephaniah comes, and he's telling that people the good news that the judgment of God, the day of the Lord is coming. And he uses beautiful, poetic language and so we're, we're not going to be able to dive into all of it today, but there, there are parts and strings of the story of God that are running through Zephaniah that I would encourage you to go back and look at. We talk about creation and, and how God formed and then how sin has caused this decreation process and this destruction, and you see some of that in the beginning of Zephaniah. We also see how pride led the people, humanity, Out of the garden, they were kicked out of the garden because of their pride, and then they continue to grow in that pride, and then they try to build the Tower of Babel, right? If you remember some of your uh, Old Testament history, if you remember some of Genesis, and then God confuses their speech. Well, 
in Zephaniah, we have this string that's running through this, this strand of beauty. It says that God will bring them back to one speech. And, and maybe you know a little bit about that in, in Pentecost and how when Jesus came, right, and then the Holy Spirit came, there was a, there was a language that they were all understanding. People that had different languages began to understand one another. And so there's this beautiful, like, biblical theology strands that are going through the Bible. And so I would encourage you, hey, what, I want to I pursue that more. I don't, we don't have time to do all of that this morning. But it's all there. I think one thing would be that one mistake that we could make is say, yeah, I sat through that uh, Book of the Twelve sermon series, and so I know about the Minor Prophets. <laughs> Listen, I'm doing a lot of studying, and I don't know about the Minor Prophets, right? Like, I don't, I don't have a grasp on it. So, so I don't think we could say that. So let's, let's take this. Let's, let's let God whet our appetite for his word, and then let's pursue it. And say, God, I want to know everything that you have for me. I want to see the beauty of your splendor throughout all of Scripture. But this morning, we're going to look at the day of the Lord and how that day of the Lord brings judgment. We begin in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. All right, that's going to get our attention. God's speaking and he says he's going to wipe out everything. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. What we begin with is this indiscriminate judgment of God. It's a judgment over all of humanity. And we might say, well, that's not fair. Like, how, how's that right? How can God judge the whole earth? Psalm 14, 1, 1 through 3. The psalmist cries out. He says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's hard for us to, to sit in. We want to think that we've brought something good to the table, but the reality is that except for the work of God in our lives, except for the pro producing of the Spirit in our hearts and in our behavior, we don't bring anything good to the table. There's a common grace that God has shown where we are made in His image so every once in a while there's glimpses but, but the true righteousness that we need only comes through the work of Christ by the power of His Spirit in our lives. So if there's anything good in you and in me today, it is because of Jesus. So the judgment that's deserved is by everyone because it says there's no one who does good, not even one. All of mankind deserves judgment, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing we can do. Zephaniah closes out chapter 1 in verses 17 and 18, and he says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. 
Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 18, it says that their silver and their gold will not be able to save them. The thing that you have that solves so many other problems, right? Our, our wealth, our ability, it's not, it's, it does us no good in the eyes of the Lord. When, when the day of the wrath of the Lord comes, we are helpless. We are helpless when we stand before a jealous God who has already given us the command that we will worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we'll turn to no other God, we'll turn to nothing else except for Him. That's what He's called us to do in this covenant relationship, and all of us have failed. We've all turned to other things. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. You see, God is a jealous God. He demands our whole heart in right and singular worship. Not, he doesn't just tell us who we are to worship. He's told us that. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God. But he's also told us how to worship. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like with everything. And so even if we somehow are worshiping the right thing, we're worshiping him incompletely. And so we stand under judgment before a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. We have a hard time with this because we want to be the center of the story. We want the story to be about us, about how we are saved, about how we went from bad to good. But the reality is that all of those things, while they may be true because of who Christ is, the story is not about us. The story is about a holy, good, righteous God. He is a jealous God. All the glory is His. All the honor is His. Just as we read from Revelation, all of it belongs to Him. The beauty is, though, that now He's... He's invited us to participate in that story. And so we can read a verse like Exodus 34, 14, and we can say, yes, God is jealous, and he longs that I worship him and him alone, and when I do that, I am satisfied. When I do that, I have joy. When I do that, I do the thing that I was made to do. That's what I want. That's what I long for. But you see, this accusation of idolatry is woven throughout all of the prophets. Well, there's often other specific implications of sin and indictments to different peoples or to different times in the history of Judah and Israel. Maybe it was the not caring for the poor or the widow or the orphan or maybe it was stealing or maybe it was lying or assimilation of culture and how they had gone to these other gods and begun to worship them. Um, but all of these things, whether it was a, a lack of sexual purity, these, these themes are more isolated, but the one theme that runs throughout all of them is this idolatry. 
But you have worshipped something else. And you've worshipped wrongly. It's carried throughout all of the prophets. And you see the reason for that is right here in Zephaniah. At the end of chapter 1. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Because God is jealous, his wrath is going to be poured out against all of humanity because they worship wrongly. If life is about worship, and that's what we're getting from Scripture, we need to think about our worship. And worship is not just this hour that we gather together and we sing some songs and we sit under the word. Like, all of life is worship. What are we worshiping? Are we worshiping our families? Are we worshiping um, entertainment? Are we worshiping our own comfort? What, What are we worshiping? Like, look at your time, your talent, your treasure. How are you spending and investing those things? And is it for true and right worship of God Almighty who is a jealous God? All the earth is going to be consumed because of his jealousy. Well, chapter 2 continues to, to break that down. What is all the earth? Well, all the earth is, is both Judah and the surrounding nations. And so it's almost as if Zephaniah is standing in Judah and he's kind of rotating around and he's pointing to all of the different nations in all different directions. And so in verse 2, 4 through 7, he points to the Philistines in the west. He says, the word of the Lord is against you. In verse 8 through 11, he points to Moab and the Ammonites in the east. And he says, the Lord will be awesome against them. Verse 12 of chapter 2, he points south and he points to Cush and towards Egypt. And he says, slain by my sword, they will be slain by my sword. And he points to Assyria in the north, and we've talked about Assyria and, and, and God's judgment against them. He says he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. Sometimes we, get, we can get behind that. We can say, yeah, God, all of those other people around us, they deserve judgment. You should, just, you should fix them, or you should punish them. Where do we make these accusations today? Like maybe, maybe for us, we make it, these accusations abroad to other cultures, to other countries. Maybe you have accusations against um, more liberal countries or um, yeah, just trying to think through some of that. Or maybe, maybe you bring it a little closer to home and you just say like in America. And we were talking a little bit before service about how there's different cultures within America where we would, we would make accusation against them. They're just wrong. They really need to be fixed. When we lived in the Northwest, the accusation was against the South and the hypocrisy. And then when we live in the South, it's often towards the Northwest and their liberalism. But there's a lot of other countries in between. But we, we make these accusations like, yeah, God, if you would just fix them. And we do it in the church, too. God, have mercy. Have mercy on us for our arrogance and our pride. And I love Zephaniah. Because he brings it home. He, he says, yeah, it's against all of those countries because they were wrong. All of those nations, all of those people groups but it's also against Judah, the people of God. 
because they have worshipped wrong. Sandwiched around these accusations against the other countries is the accusation and the strongest judgments and they're against Judah. We see it at the beginning of chapter 3. We've read it. It'd be great if we could think that this is not about God's people, but the beginning of chapter 3 is directed at the nation of Judah. Speaking particularly about the city of Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. I can read this and I can see in my own heart that that's true. We can see it in each other's lives. But there's moments where we, we don't accept correction, we don't trust God, we don't repent, we don't draw near to God, instead we, we try to escape and run to other places. And so this accusation of the people of God hits home in our hearts and in our lives today. And then he has a particular warning to the people that would lead Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Three and four, talking about the people of God. Verse five is talking about God himself. God is righteous. God is just. Six and seven, he continues to talk about the judgment. And then eight, he says, Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Listen, It's hard. It's hard to sit under the bad news. We don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. But to understand grace, we need to understand what we deserve by our actions, by who we are. In our righteousness, or our unrighteousness in this case, we deserve the judgment of God. No one is righteous. But then we get to verse 9 and we see this shift that's taking place. And it goes from verse 8 to verse 9. And as we read it, maybe you're questioning like I did. Like, how how does that make sense? How does that happen? Therefore, verse 8, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Verse 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Like, like 8 to 9, what happened? 
We had a, a people that deserved God's ending, that, that were sitting under the indignation and the burning anger of God and the fire of his jealousy. And then in 9, it says that he's doing this thing where he changes their speech to a pure speech, that they would call upon the name of the Lord, that they would serve him with one accord, that people beyond what was known, right? Cush was to the south, but, but there's people beyond Cush. That God is going to draw back in, in, from this dispersion where He had sent them and He's going to bring them all back and they're going to worship Him in righteousness and in truth. And they won't be put to shame because of their deeds even though they rebelled against Him. How, does, how is this happening? How do we get to verses 12 and 13? But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. We have three and a half chapters of the judgment of God, rightful judgment. And then from verse 8 to 9, we see this change that takes place. We see that the people of God are no longer walking in their arrogance and their pride, but they are humbled. Verse 12, a people humble and lowly. The people that deserve shame, but they're not going to be put to shame, even though they were rebellious. A people who shall do no injustice and speak no lies. In verse 13, no deceit shall be found in their tongue. How does this happen? This promised remnant, how is it made? How do we move from punishment and judgment to salvation? Well, we've already said that we can't do this. We can't do this. It's accomplished by God himself. We see it at the end of verse 12. They shall take refuge in the name of the Lord. But I also want you to back up in chapter 2. Read verses 1 through 3 with me. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. So when the day of the Lord shows up, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be a pouring out of His wrath. So how are we going to survive the day of the Lord? We see it in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Hidden. Maybe you'll be hidden. Well, we've already said we can't hide. Chris said it in the prayer confession, there's nowhere that we can hide before a a God who knows all things, sees all things, and is in all things. So how are we going to be hidden? God himself is going to come and he's going to hide us. This, This theme is picked up throughout scripture. This ability to be hidden in God. Psalms 27, 5, David sings and he says, for he will hide me in his shelter on the day of trouble. 
He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. What we need is a humility and a righteousness. That's what, that's what Zephaniah is saying. Listen in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This humility is not something that you and I can conjure up. This righteousness is not us getting better. Okay, because before a holy and just God, it demands perfect righteousness. Perfect obedience. So this humility and this righteousness, we've already proven that we are a proud and arrogant people. We need a humility that is outside of us. Like Adam, you and I, in the garden, like Adam in the garden, you and I have said, on my own I can live. I don't need God. That theme is picked up in Zephaniah. This pride and this arrogance against God. This righteousness is not within our grasp. So if humility is not within our grasp, maybe we go and pursue righteousness. Well, the righteousness isn't within our grasp either. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. If the standard of righteousness was relative, right? if it was just being better than the person next to you, we'd all just find really messed up people to live next to. Good news, we already have that. Like... We all together are messed up people. So the righteousness is not a relative righteousness that we need. We need to be righteous before a pure and holy God. The standard for God's righteousness is himself. He's the only one that can meet that standard. So then how do we move from the people who sit under judgment to the people who would be saved, to the people who would be hidden. We do it by faith, by trusting that the only protection from God is God. The only one who would protect us from, from judgment and wrath is God Himself, and He's done it in His Son. David's taking hold of this truth by faith in Psalm 27. He, he doesn't, he's not experiencing it. He's hoping for it. He's longing for it. For he will hide me in his shelter on the day of trouble. We tend to think that the day of trouble is a circumstantial trouble outside of who God is. But if there's anything that Zephaniah is pointing to, he's pointing to the fact that the day of the Lord, whichever army it is that's going to come in and take over and destroy, that is God himself who's doing it. That is God's judgment. That is God's wrath being poured out. And so on the day of the Lord, there will be trouble for those who are proud and idolatrous. On that day of trouble, you and I need to be hidden. If for those who are hidden in humility and righteousness, there's a hope for salvation. David knew his need to be hidden in the Lord. Zephaniah knows that, that if the people of God would be saved. They need to be hidden with a humility and a righteousness that is not their own. And if you've been with us for some time, you remember when we walked through Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and we, we saw that in, there's this beautiful verse in Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
how are we going to be hidden? How are we going to escape wrath and judgment? We're hidden because of what Christ has done. Zephaniah is pointing to this truth thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, that that Christ would come, that there would be an atoning work that's going to be done that would give us a righteousness and a humility that is not our own. And it's going to be that God himself would come, lay down his life. Listen, that's, that's humility. That the Son of God would come and pay a price that you and I deserve to pay, that's humility. That he would walk perfect obedience to the Father, that's righteousness. That at the cross, the justice of God, the rightful wrath and condemnation met mercy, that's something that only God can do, that justice and mercy would kiss, like that they would be so together, it happens at that moment that Jesus comes and the wrath of God is poured out on him instead of us. What you and I deserve, Jesus drinks at the cross. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. He is crucified. He's beaten. He's shamed. Made a laughing stock. All of the things that you and I in our wickedness and in our pride and in our idolatry that we deserve, Jesus bore it. And in that place, He atones for our sin and He gives us His righteousness. Like, that is amazing. We are hidden. Our sin and our shame is hidden and all that is seen is the righteousness of Christ because we are in Christ when we take hold of it by faith. That's the good news of the Gospel. It's a Gospel that we celebrate so often that it can just become mundane. We have to be careful. We have to be careful to think that somehow I've earned this or somehow I've done this or maybe I've been going to church long enough that now, yeah, that's just part of who I am and what I do and so it's, I deserve what God's giving me. No, when we gather together, why do we gather? Do we gather to earn his favor? No, we gather because we've received a favor that is not ours. It is the son's and he's given it to us and so we rejoice in it. We make much of who he is. And you know what? So does Zephaniah. Because those were hidden in Christ and they've received a humility and a righteousness that were not theirs, you can look at the end of Zephaniah and let's, in verse 14. This is the result of the grace of God for the people of God. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Sorry, I skipped. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. 
But that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned, renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What is the response that, that God would save a remnant? That he would hide his people in his humility and in his righteousness. And he would save some. And the response is praise and adoration and worship. That the response is what should have already been taking place, just it's, it's even more. God had already saved them from Egypt and they, they remembered and they would worship. But there was a future salvation that was coming that wasn't a circumstantial salvation, but it was a, a salvation from death. It's sin and death. When we, think, when we sing these songs, like sin has no power over us. Death is defeated. The things that would, that would cause us fear are done because of what Jesus has done. That's, a, that's miraculous. That should stir in us worship and shouts of praise. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. The people of God should be the most rejoicing exultant people that we can find. And by grace, He's doing that in us. Like we still struggle with sin and brokenness, but we also rejoice in the goodness and the mercy of God that He has saved. So we rejoice in what He's done. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We began in Hebrews 1. And we looked and said, hey, the beginning of it is is that long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. But verse 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Like, this is the beauty of the ongoing story of God. Like, in Zephaniah, you get this beautiful picture of what it's going to look like. But we get to look back and we see, man, and he's done it. He has done it in his son. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the one who has come and made sacrifice and and become the shelter and the hiding place for us, given us his, His humility, given us His righteousness before a holy God. That's the story that we celebrate every week. So what is our response? The response has to be repentance. God, forgive me for the other things that I've gone to and I've tried to hide under. My own abilities, my own righteousness, my own works. Or maybe it's just I, I haven't believed and I've run to other things to try to escape. Knowing that God is just. Knowing that I deserve His wrath. God, forgive me. And then immediately, right after that, because we are forgiven... There should be this response of worship, a response of rejoicing, a response of sing, O daughters of Zion, sing, rejoice, shout to God. So I pray that we would do that today. I pray that we would turn from our sin knowing that there's a judgment, 
against the proud and the arrogant, against the unrighteous. But as we turn from that sin, as we trust in the finished work and righteousness of Jesus, that we would rejoice, that we would sing and make much of who he is and what he's done. Amen? Amen. God, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to an unfaithful people. We thank you for your long-suffering that you would continue to send prophet after prophet to your people to remind them of who you are and point to the redemption that would come, to the Messiah, the Savior who would come. Thank you for even pointing to the very real consequences of sin, the very real judgment that outside of Christ we sit under. God, thank you that, that in, even in seeing that, we recognize more fully the work of Jesus, what he has done, that he has saved wretches like you and me, and he has, he, God, you've done this thing. You've saved us. And you've poured out your righteousness in us to walk in. We thank you that the story is not about us, but it is about a great God who suffered and died in our place and who was humbled for a little while, but in the end, he receives all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. God, stir in our hearts a desire to share this to speak of this, to give this good, good gift, the good news to those around us who are hurting, who are broken. God, may we rejoice in the goodness of God. The story is not about us. It is about you. So, Lord, may we tell that story. May it be on our lips and in our hearts. Make us into a people who would sing, a people who would shout, people who would rejoice in the goodness of God. We ask all this in your name. Amen.